Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. Please turn with me to your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. We have graduated to chapter 9, and this is a sermon entitled, Looks Can Be Deceiving. Looks Can Be Deceiving. How many of you ever wondered what Jesus really looked like? Yeah, it's always interesting to see when movies are made about Jesus, to see how that role is cast. What kind of actor do they pick? What is his appearance? Back in 2014, Mark Burnett and Roma Downey created a film called Son of God. Did anybody see that? Remember seeing the movie Son of God? This was how they cast the role of Jesus. Handsome fellow, isn't he? This is uh, Diego Morgado. I even, the name is even kind of sexy, isn't it? Diego Morgado. And um, he's a por- Portuguese actor. He was once honored as GQ's Man of the Year in Portugal, all of which prompted a USA Today article entitled, Morgado's Hot Jesus Everywhere on Easter. Now, my Bible calls Jesus a lot of things, but hot is not one of them. In fact, Isaiah 53, 2, it says this about our Savior. It says, The servant grew up before God, a scrawny seedling, a scrubby plant in a parched field. There was nothing attractive about him, nothing to cause us to take a second look. He was looked down on and passed over. Not exactly GQ material. However, as the title for today's sermon says, looks can be deceiving or you can't judge a book by its cover, can you? Because in today's passage, three of the apostles catch a glimpse, just for a moment, of the hidden, overwhelming glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So would you please stand with me as I read the text, Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. And I want you to imagine that you are there right with Peter, James, and John on this mountain and seeing what they saw and experiencing what they experienced. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses and They were talking with Jesus, and Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? 
But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Father, open our eyes to see what Peter, James, and John saw. Give us a greater appreciation for your divinity, for your glory, for your majesty. Forgive us for how at times we can treat you so flippantly, so casually, so carelessly. As you you pulled back the veil just for a moment for these three apostles, would you pull back the veil for us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, to understand this passage, we have to go back to the last passage and to the words of Jesus who said in 831, he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. How did that make the disciples feel when Jesus gave them this news? They were disillusioned, they were discouraged, they were disappointed. This was not their idea or the traditional Jewish idea of what was supposed to be the character and the nature and the activity of the Messiah. As far as they were concerned, the Messiah was to be a mighty warrior who would conquer all of Israel's enemies. Certainly not one who would suffer, be rejected, and be killed. And then, as if that weren't disillusioning or disappointing enough, Jesus went on to say in verse 34 of chapter 8 that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Point being that not only would Jesus suffer, be rejected, and die, but he was calling his followers to do the very same thing, all of which created a cloud of pessimism and doubt which at this point hovered over the disciples, which is the very first point in our outline this morning. It is the pessimism. The pessimism. The the, the disciples there at this point consumed by pessimism and doubt and discouragement, disappointment, disillusionment. And that mindset is the backdrop for what happens in our text today. The second point of our outline is the prediction in verse 1. This is really important. The prediction. It says in that verse, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, what on earth is Jesus talking about here? This is actually a question that has been hotly debated by biblical scholars. Gallons of ink have been spilled attempting to give explanation to what Jesus means by some standing here today will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Some think it refers to actually the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. For you see, to to truly see these events is to see the kingdom of God come in power. It's one possibility. Others think it refers to to Pentecost, where in the upper room, the Holy Spirit came like tongues of fire and indwelt all the believers who were present there. Surely, that's an example of the kingdom of God coming in power. Others think it's the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, as God brings divine discipline on His chosen people. And surely, to witness such a catastrophic event of Biblical proportions is to see the kingdom of God come in power. But others say it refers to the church. 
that we, as the body of Christ, acting as the hands and feet of Jesus and doing what he did, that to see the church is to see the kingdom of God come in power. I like that. That's a beautiful image. And I do believe that there is some validity to all of these, but in context, and that's what we always have to return to, right? In context, Jesus isn't talking about any of these. He's talking about something else completely different. But before we get to that, we have to talk about the place, the place. And that is point number three in our outline. Look at verse 2 where it says, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Now, why did I highlight those words after six days? Well, because Mark's precision in stating time here tells us that what is about to happen is connected with the prediction that Jesus just made in the verse before. They go together. So whatever is about to happen is the fulfillment of some seeing the kingdom of God coming in power. Verse 1 goes together with whatever is coming next. And notably, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all place what is about to happen after the prediction that Jesus made in verse 1. So it's not the crucifixion, resurrection, or ascension. It's not Pentecost. It's not the destruction of Jerusalem, and not even the church that Jesus is here talking about in verse 1. It's something else, something that we'll get to in just a moment. And the some, it says some will see, who are going to get to see, are listed here. Peter, James, and John, these three handsome guys right here. Now, what is the setting or the place of this epic event? It says in verse 2 that Jesus led them up a high mountain by themselves. Most likely, this is Mount Hermon located about 12 miles northeast of Caesarea Philippi, which you will recall is where Jesus and the disciples were prior to this. So it would make sense that Mount Hermon was indeed the place where the events in our text today took place. It is a significant mountain in close proximity to Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus and his disciples just were. And so they traveled to the mountain and then had to climb up the mountain, which was no small feat because it measures 9,200 feet above sea level. Now, did they go all the way to the top? I have no idea. But however high that Jesus went with Peter, James, and John, there was definitely some difficult terrain and some intense climbing involved, all of which brings us to point number four in the outline, which is the phenomenon. The phenomenon. What's a phenomenon? It's a cool word, phenomenon. You just kind of, anyway. A phenomenon is a remarkable person, thing, or event. A phenomenon is a remarkable person, thing, or event. And we have in our story today all of the above. All of the above. In the second half of verse 2, it says, And Jesus was transfigured before them transfigured before them. Now, we have to be very, very, very careful with this word transfigured, because at first glance, we could read it to mean that Jesus became something completely different, like he was one thing, and then he became another. And that is not what happened at all. Listen carefully. While it is true that the appearance of Jesus changed, his essence did not change. While it is true that the appearance of Jesus changed, his essence did not change. Rather, he simply gave to Peter, James, and John a glimpse. 
a momentary glimpse of who he truly was. And who was Jesus? And who is Jesus? He is God Almighty and therefore full of glory. In John chapter 17, verse 5, Jesus was praying to the Father and he said, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence. Existed. I had with you before the world existed. Meditate on that for a minute. This verse reminds us that Jesus is God, has always been God, will always be God, and therefore has always had this divine glory, even before the creation of the world. But when Jesus came to earth as a human, the Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, Paul says Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, what does it mean he emptied himself? Um, Pastor Stephen Cole, he says it so well. He says it means that in the incarnation, which is what we celebrate at Christmas, Jesus's glory was veiled, and he voluntarily limited the use of certain of his divine attributes as he took on the form of a servant and became obedient to death on the cross. He did not surrender any of his divine attributes or he would have ceased to be God, which is impossible. But he took on the limitations of our humanity apart from sin. How about that, huh? You see, the glory of Jesus was still present in its fullness when Jesus walked the earth, but it was veiled. It was covered up. But now on Mount Hermon, Jesus is momentarily removing the veil so that Peter, James, and John could actually see a glimpse of his glory. Now we might ask, why is Jesus doing this? Why is he doing it now? What do you think? Well, remember the first point in our outline, which was what? Somebody yell it. The pessimism. The disciples were still reeling from the message Jesus gave them about suffering, rejection, and death. And I imagine that these disciples may have even wrestled with some doubts over this whole enterprise. So, in the midst of the pessimism of the disciples, Jesus gives them this wonderful gift of the transfiguration. In the midst of the pessimism of the disciples, Jesus gives them this wonderful gift of the transfiguration. And isn't that just like Jesus? He knows what we need, doesn't he? And he gives us exactly what we need when we need it. And these disciples needed some encouragement. They needed a vision of his glory, and that's exactly what they get. Jesus momentarily unveils his glory to encourage them and give them hope. And to remind them, listen carefully, that beyond the suffering is what? The glory. Amen. Beyond the suffering, there is the glory. Well, what did this transfiguration look like? I'll give you a hint. Point number five in our outline is the purity. The purity. Look at verse three. It says, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. We're getting ready to do some painting at our house, and I had no idea how many shades of white there are. White is white, right? No, there's a whole catalog of white. Well, this is the whitest white. 
that anyone has ever seen, probably blinding Peter, James, and John. Now, quiz question. Is this light coming from the outside and shining on Jesus? No. It is coming from the inside of Jesus. And thus reminding Peter, James, and John that this person standing before them, this one of whom Isaiah said, there's nothing attractive about him, nothing to cause us to take a second look, that he was in his very essence glorious. He was and is and will be God Almighty and therefore holy, holy, holy. Can we sing that right now? Holy, holy, holy. I never miss an opportunity to sing that one. That's one of my favorites. Let's do it. Holy, holy. He's not just holy. He's not just holy, holy. He is holy, 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 the very definition of purity. And it, it, as if all of this wasn't intense enough, this intense whiteness coming out of Jesus um, radiating on Peter, James, and John, we come to point number six in the outline, which is the prophets. The prophets. Look at verse four. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. Now put yourself in Peter, James, and John's sandals for a moment. You're already pretty freaked out and terrified about what you're witnessing as the glory of Jesus comes out before them. And now, in some form, here is a resurrected Elijah and Moses standing before them. And they're talking with Jesus. What do you think they were talking about? I have some ideas. Now, all, of all the people that could have shown up on that mountain, and if you look back in the history of the, the Old Testament, there are all kinds of candidates. What about King David? You know, what about Abraham? Why is it that Moses and Elijah show up on the mountain? Well, Moses, you'll recall, represented the law, and Elijah represented the prophets. And when you put them together, the law and the prophets, what you have is the sum of Old Testament revelation. The point being that their presence on the mountain is the totality of the Old Testament, and it points to Jesus. Let me say that again. The totality of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, points to Jesus. That's why you have Moses and Elijah showing up on the mountain. And it tells us that Jesus is the fulfillment of it all. Jesus is the fulfillment of it all. And the presence of Moses and Elijah on that mountain validates this truth. And so you're Peter, James, and John. You're seeing what's happening, and you're putting the pieces together. And again, these are pessimistic, discouraged, disillusioned apostles at this point, And they're being overwhelmed by this revelation that they're given. But their faith and their hope is being restored. 
Now, we may be surprised that thus far Peter hasn't said anything because it seems that Peter always has something to say. Well, finally, he can take it no more. And then finally in verse 5, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Which is so classic, Peter, isn't it? Didn't know what to say, so what does he do? He speaks. Speaking up when he should be quiet. Now, what do you think is motivating Peter to make three tents? What was that about? Why does he want to do this? Well, it's entirely possible that this is yet another example that shows us that Peter still isn't quite getting it, or that perhaps he doesn't want to get it. He doesn't want to get the necessity of suffering and the cross. That maybe this whole idea of, hey, let's make three tents, he's trying to milk this a little bit. He's saying, let's stretch this out. Let's camp out here and prolong this mountaintop experience and not have to go back down the mountain where Jesus has said we will have to face suffering and death. So once again, Peter's demonstrating human thinking rather than divine wisdom. Well, again, as if all of this weren't enough, the blinding white, the presence of Moses and Elijah, the intensity goes up even more in verse 7, where we have the proclamation, the proclamation. Verse 7 says, and a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. It's one thing to have Moses and Elijah show up, and that is indeed impressive. But now, God the Father shows up in all of his glory. And you'll remember that in the Old Testament, God the Father often manifested his presence as what? As a cloud. As a cloud. It was true when the Israelites were in the wilderness and he led them how? Pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night, his glory. And it was true when they worshiped in the tabernacle, the glory cloud, the Shekinah glory of God present among his people. And now what was true in the Old Testament is true on Mount Hermon. God the Father is present in the form of a cloud. And he speaks for the second time in the book of Mark. Do you remember the first time that God the Father spoke in the book of Mark? When was that? At the baptism of Jesus. What did God the Father say then at the baptism of Jesus? Back in Mark 1.11, long time ago. This was probably back in January. A voice from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Now God speaks for the second time in the book of Mark. And what does he say on Mount Hermon? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Good words for us today, aren't they? Listen to him. And not just listen in the sense of, oh yeah, I hear what you had, like, a, like when you were a teenager, listening, to, yeah, I got you, I got you, whatever. But no, listen, listen and obey. So on Mount Hermon, Jesus receives endorsements, right? He received endorsement from Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, all of the Old Testament pointing to Jesus. And now he receives endorsement from God the Father himself. Again, much needed encouragement 
for pessimistic and discouraged disciples. Well, contrary to Peter's plan of trying to prolong this event and stay on the mountaintop, it says in verse 8, and suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. I love those two words, right? Jesus only. And make a great life motto, a great purpose statement, a great way of focusing your attention, Jesus only. Which then leads to the eighth point of our outline, the prohibition. The prohibition. Verse 9 says, And they were coming down the mountain, and he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves. Now, we've seen such talk before from Jesus, right? Don't tell anybody. And often it was because, you know, people would get the wrong idea about the kind of Messiah that he had come to be. He was not here to immediately overthrow the Romans and to destroy all of Israel's enemies. Jesus came first and foremost not to bring political salvation, but to bring spiritual salvation. But why does Jesus say on this occasion to Peter, James, and John, don't tell anybody? I think the answer is in the second half. It gives us a clue in the second half of verse 10 where it says that they were, Peter, James, and John, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. What that tells me is that they still were trying to put the pieces together. They still weren't really getting it. They still weren't understanding all that Jesus was saying. They were having trouble breaking free from their preconceived ideas of what the Messiah should be. Now, after the resurrection they'll understand. The light bulb will go on. But for now, they don't fully understand. And so for them to go out and tell others what they, what they saw in regard to the transfiguration would only cause more confusion and perpetuate per- perhaps wrong ideas about the Messiah and thus the prohibition. But watch this. I think this is really cool. Listen to what Peter wrote after the resurrection in 2 Peter 1.16. Peter wrote, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, what's all that talking about? The transfiguration. So after the resurrection, Peter gets it, and he does indeed give witness to it, all that he experienced at the transfiguration. Likewise, John, we've got Peter, James, and John at the transfiguration. Listen to what John says in his gospel, written after the resurrection, John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When did John see the glory of Jesus? On Mount Hermon at the Transfiguration. And this brings us to the ninth and final point of the outline, the prophecy. The prophecy. Look at verse 11. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? All right, some good signs here. They're they're thinking. The wheels are turning. The whole experience has got them engaged. Specifically, they're thinking about a specific Old Testament prophecy about Elijah, who they just saw. So it's like, okay, there's Elijah. 
ding, 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 Elijah. Um, it reminded them that the prophet Malachi said in Malachi 4, verses 5 through 6, Malachi wrote, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so the disciples are like, okay, we're, we're struggling here. We're struggling to fit this together because Jesus is making the claim to be the Messiah. And all the evidence does seem to point to that. Here on this mountain, we're seeing all this stuff. But what about this Malachi prophecy about Elijah? It says Elijah has to come before Jesus. And so how does that work? How does that fit together? If, if, Elijah, if Elijah hasn't yet come, how can Jesus already be here as the Messiah? To which Jesus answered in verse 12. And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. So here's the thing. According to Jesus, there are two different senses in which Elijah comes before the Messiah. Two different senses in which Elijah comes before the Messiah and will, in fact, fulfill Malachi's prophecy. The first sense is Elijah coming before the first coming of Jesus. Elijah coming before the first coming of Jesus, and that was fulfilled by John the Baptist. This is a figurative coming of Elijah. John the Baptist was not a reincarnated Elijah or anything like that. It says in Luke 1.17 of John the Baptist, and he will go before Jesus in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. That is why Jesus said in Mark 9, 13, but I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased. Do you remember that? How did John the Baptist's life come to an end? He was beheaded. Jesus was referring to John the Baptist as a figurative Elijah who came before the first advent of Jesus. However, I do believe there is also a second sense in which Elijah himself comes before the Messiah and is literal, in which Elijah comes number two before the second coming of Jesus, before he comes to judge the earth, before he comes in glory, Elijah will return as one of the two tribulation witnesses in the book of Revelation. You remember um, in uh, Revelation 11 verse 3, back to our Revelation study, it says, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. And it is widely believed that Elijah is one of these two witnesses that he once again appears on the scene, and this is the literal fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy. So we got a fulfillment before the first coming, which is in John the Baptist, and we have a fulfillment before the second coming where Elijah himself comes as one of the two tribulation witnesses. Everybody take a deep breath. That was more for my benefit than yours. So we've considered these nine elements here in Mark 9. The pessimism, prediction, place, phenomenon, purity, prophets, proclamation, prohibition, and prophecy. Pastor Mike would be very thrilled with the alliteration here. Um, 
Let's shift now to application and ask the question, how should we then live? Number one, first point of application, be slow to speak. Be slow to speak. Where does that come from in the passage? Our old friend Peter, who was not slow to speak, but rather often spoke when he should have remained silent. A prime example of this mandate to be slow to speak. Proverbs 10.19 says this, so simple and so true, and we know it experientially. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. It just makes sense, right? The more you talk, the greater the possibility that you're going to say something that you shouldn't. We don't need to talk all the time. We can listen. God gave us two ears and one mouth, right? He did so for a reason that we might listen twice as much as we speak. There's an American proverb which says, never pass up an opportunity to keep your mouth shut. (laughs) So may God teach us and give us the power to restrain our speech. We must learn to be slow to speak. Next, number two, be awful. Be awful, which simply means full of awe and how we see Jesus. Full of awe in how we see Jesus. For the truth of the matter is that we can become just a little, maybe a lot too comfortable, a lot too casual in how we relate to Jesus, too flippant, careless in how we relate to Jesus, not truly acknowledging who he is, his glorious divinity, and the fact that he is holy, 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 and that you as a believer who have the indwelling of his spirit, you take him with you wherever you go, and whatever you do, and whatever you think, and whatever you say, there is Jesus in all of his glory. I feel we need a fresh encounter with how we see Jesus the kind of encounter that Peter, James, and John had on the Mount of Hermon and the kind of encounter that John himself had in the book of Revelation. Once again, back to our Revelation story. What did John see in Revelation 1 when he had this vision of the Christ? He saw him as the Son of Man, the Messiah King. He saw him wearing a robe and sash, which means that he's the high priest. He saw him with white hair, speaking of his divine purity and wisdom. He had eyes like fire, which means he sees all. He has bronze feet, which means he judges sin. He has the voice like many waters, which means he has ultimate authority. Two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, which means that he fights for us. His eyes are shining like the sun, or more glorious than we can possibly imagine. Not his eyes, but his whole being. I'm sure that when John had this vision of Jesus near the end of his life, it reminded him of what he saw on Mount Hermon, the glory of Jesus that he saw earlier in his life, when Jesus was transfigured before his very eyes, when the veil was momentarily pulled back, and John saw his glory. We need to see a fresh vision of his glory and relate to him appropriately. To do so would put everything in perspective, wouldn't it? That old chorus, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. 
So be slow to speak, be awful, and lastly, be ready. Be ready. Because here's the thing, the glimpse of the glory of Jesus and the transfiguration is a foretaste. It's a glimpse into the future of Jesus when he returns in his glory. And we read in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, some very sobering words. It says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, we keep talking about his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, and before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And then verse 46, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. You see, that glory revealed on Mount Hermon at the transfiguration is a preview of the glory to come when Jesus returns in the clouds to judge the earth. And so it is both an encouragement and a warning, right? There are sheep, those who are received into God's kingdom, and there are goats, those who are judged and receive eternal punishment. It's one or the other. Which are you? Which are you? And I wonder, you know, perhaps the litmus test is, if Jesus were to come back in glory on the clouds right now, what would be your attitude about that? I mean, I think there's a sense in which we're all going to be a little terrified, as Peter, James, and John were as they saw the glory of God, but that terror is more about seeing something that is so much bigger than we are versus, oh no, I'm not ready. Are you ready? It's the third point in our application this morning. Be ready. Of course, the way to be ready is to acknowledge your sinfulness before God. To say, woe is me. I am a wretched sinner standing before a holy God. To acknowledge that we have offended the creator of the universe as we have all become idol worshipers. Perhaps the, the idol of self being the greatest among our sins. And the way to eternal life is to acknowledge that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Jesus, that whoever believes in him, and belief means we turn from our sins, we turn to Jesus alone for forgiveness, and we say, I need a savior. And Jesus is the only way to salvation. And so by faith, I receive Jesus. He takes my sin, I receive his righteousness, and I receive him as both Savior and Lord to walk with him all the days of my life, to live abundantly in his presence in this life and in the life to come. Is that you this morning? If not, today can be the day. Today can be the day. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Father, open our eyes to see your glory. We get so fixated on the things of the world. We get so fixated on the trivial that we lose sight of the eternal. We get so fixated on self that we lose sight of Jesus and God Almighty. God, turn our eyes to Jesus this morning and put everything in its proper place. We seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, knowing that then all these things will be added to us. God, for anyone who is here this morning, and since it's the nudge of the Holy Spirit to cross that line of faith, God, I pray that they would do so. This would be the day of salvation for them. For all of us, God, put a guard over our lips, over our mouths. Forgive us for having loose lips and saying and speaking in ways that we ought not. 
we acknowledge our need for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here this morning and you could use some help in taking next steps on your spiritual journey, please seek me out. We'd be very happy to help you in what is next. And so would you please stand with me as we